Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It is a regime change. Well, no, actually, nothing's changed. Michael McKee is off at someplace romantic, while Lisa, John, and I are <clears throat> in the cold chill of a summer uh, in New York. It is Michael McKee in conversation at the Rocky Mountain Summit with the most interesting gentleman from St. Louis. Michael McKee, good morning. Good morning to you, Tom. We are here in Victor, Idaho, where the sun will be up in a little bit. The sun's already up in St. Louis, and we'd like to welcome Jim Bullard to Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Good morning to you, sir. I'd like to start with a two-part question. Chairman Powell yesterday said that inflation is largely a factor. The inflation we're seeing is largely a factor of the reopening of the economy and supply chain issues that will fade. But he also said that we are some ways off from the substantial further progress the Fed's using as a marker for when it wants to start tapering. So question one, do you agree with Chairman Powell on inflation that it is going to be very temporary? And question two, where do you think we are on that substantial further progress continuum? You know, on the you said very temporary. I think that's the the key debate here. Uh, I think uh, it's clear that some of the inflation will be temporary. How much and how much feeds into a more persistent process is really the question that the uh, committee has to wrestle with uh, going forward here. So I think we're we're you know already above our target on core PC inflation. The committee, according to the summary of economic projections, is projecting three uh, percent. That's excluding food and energy prices. Uh, that's more inflation than we've seen in a long time in the U.S. And I think some of that will uh, hang on and and persist through twenty. Uh, 22. And we had hotter uh, reports uh, than we anticipated recently. So there's some uh, possibility that we would ratchet up our expectations for inflation in 2021 and 22. Um, so this is a different situation than we faced uh, in the past. Um, on the on the labor market, I think we have made uh, substantial progress. Uh, we've uh, come a long way from where we were last uh, December. And all indications are by anecdotal reports that uh, the labor market is going to continue to improve. A lot of people are looking toward September, October, when schools are back in session for further uh, improvements. So I think uh, we're in great shape on labor markets as far as having been able to uh, make progress uh, since last uh, December is not fully healed, it's not fully uh, done, but, uh, but have we come a long way since December? I think the answer is yes. Well, in terms of that progress, then, do you think tapering may have to come sooner than most people anticipate, perhaps uh, pulling it forward into the fourth quarter of this year? 
Uh, well, the committee's going to uh, debate that in earnest now at the July meeting. Uh, I would emphasize there are lots of parameters around a taper decision. Uh, the starting date is only one part of it. Uh, the pace of tapering is another part. MBS versus Treasuries, um, and we can talk about that if, if you want. And, and, uh, but I think the most important thing and, uh, that I've been stressing here is the idea that uh, you probably don't want to be on automatic pilot in this situation. This is a really fast-growing economy, uh, lots of things happening both in the U.S. and globally. Uh, and I don't think we're, we have the luxury of being able to just uh, go on to automatic pilot and, and say that we're never going to change uh, the pace of purchases. I think we have to be more state contingent than that. Uh, because uh, we're not quite sure where this inflation process is going to go. We need some optionality uh, on the upside uh, with respect to possible inflation shocks. Well, the chairman did say again yesterday that if inflation did seem to be persistent, the Fed wouldn't hesitate to act and that you have the tools to deal with inflation. What do you say to critics on Wall Street who say, yes, you have the tool to deal with inflation, you raise interest rates and then historically plunge the economy into recession? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of uh, logic, I think, that uh, you want to avoid, uh, that uh, you get too far uh, out of alignment with what's actually happening in the economy, and then, then you really have to react uh, uh, more strongly than you'd like and uh, possibly causing disruption in the economy. So you don't want to be in that situation. I think the risk management here is that if, if inflation does come back down uh, in 2022, uh, we're in great position for that. We're, we're exactly uh, positioned for that. But if it doesn't, uh, we're not in such great position. So I think for that reason, um, we want to have some flexibility on this taper. There are a lot of people who look at what the Fed is doing and say uh, the economy is opening very fast, as Jim Bullard says. Uh, so why do we need $120 billion a month, $40 billion of that in mortgage bonds? What do we get for that that we wouldn't get for less? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Uh, you know, we we took this policy uh, decision in April, March and April of 2020. Uh, that was a very different situation. The pandemic was uh, just getting going, and uh, it looked like there could be a financial crisis. Uh, people were talking Great Depression. Uh, so that was the context in which uh, this decision was made. But now you're in a very different situation uh, 15 months later, where the pandemic's coming under very uh, sharp control here. You've got uh, growth in real GDP projected to be 7% in the U.S. this year, uh, faster than China has typically grown in recent years. Uh, you've got uh, bottlenecks and shortages uh, everywhere. Uh, so this is a very different situation. Um, uh, Treasury market functioning and other financial markets seem to be functioning very well. Financial stress indexes are way uh, are back down to normal and have been uh, for some time. So I think uh, I think we're in a situation where we can uh, we can taper and and I think setting those parameters uh, the right way. Uh, we don't want to jar markets or anything, but I think it is time uh, to end these emergency measures. 
Well, there's certainly a lot of concern out there on Wall Street that uh, the Fed has sort of eliminated price discovery and the uncertainty over when you're going to taper is setting the stage for possible market accidents. Are you worried about uh, assets? Uh, I mean, I love price discovery just as much as the next person. Uh, I'm a little skeptical that there isn't any uh, on Wall Street. It's true that uh, monetary policy is part of the equilibrium, uh, so uh, traders have to factor that in. I know it's a tough job, uh, but, um, but I think we've uh, come a long way with our transparency and our uh, ideas about constantly communicating and trying to do our best to, uh, to inform markets about where the uh, monetary policy debate is and uh, where it's likely to go, at least short term. But we don't know the, how the data is going to come in any better than anyone else. And for that reason, uh, you are going to get slight adjustments uh, all the time. I'm out here in Idaho at the Rocky Mountain Economic Summit with a lot of CEOs and economists, and the CEOs are all asking the economists, why does the Fed think there's no inflation when gas prices are way up, when home prices are way up? Now, I know that raising interest rates isn't going to bring down gasoline prices, but how do you keep inflation expectations anchored when the real economy inflation is something that people are starting to talk about? Yeah, this is, uh, the, like I said in my opening comments, this is a different situation than we've seen in the U.S. Uh, for quite a while. This is quite a bit of inflation, more than we're used to, and you kind of have a, uh, a generation that hasn't seen very much inflation. So um, I do think it will be a challenge to keep inflation expectations in check. I do take some solace that uh, markets are, seem to be giving us a vote of confidence based on the tips market, uh, uh, that we're going to bring this uh, under control and, and continue to have good inflation outcomes for the U.S., but it does require management and it does require us uh, to move appropriately uh, on uh, issues like uh, tapering asset purchases and, and talking about uh, when we would lift off of zero at some point down the road. I'm wondering how you think about and factor COVID into your economic projections now, especially since uh, Missouri seems to be this, the poster boy state for not getting vaccinated and having cases rise. Uh, we track it every day. Uh, I, I, I like to look at the, the main indicator, uh, uh, deaths per day per million uh, in the U.S. and compared to other countries around the world. It has come down. Uh, dramatically and is projected to continue to fall. Uh, it's true not everyone is uh, vaccinated. I think that uh, it would be unrealistic to think every single person is going to get vaccinated. That's not how this, uh, that's not how this works. Uh, but I'm hopeful that we can get to the, a level that will bring the uh, virus under uh, clear control. I think that is happening. Um, uh, I also uh, would encourage people to think about the vaccination. I think this is a preventable uh, uh, disease at this point. Uh, there's no reason that really now that we have to have uh, very many deaths from, uh, from COVID-19. Uh, one last question. I want to go back to something John Farrell said at the beginning of the show, quoting a congressman. Uh, in the summary of economic projections, uh, you see long-term economic growth at 1.8 percent. 
if we're spending all this money, why are we only getting 1.8% growth? Uh, what's the benefit to the real economy from everything that you're doing over the longer run? You know, that is a great question to ask. I think what we're looking at here is uh, uh, really fantastic growth in the U.S. during 2021. 7% is the current uh, projection of, of various uh, prognosticators uh, and, and uh, our own staff here. Um, and then I think above trend growth in 2022, above trend growth in 2023. So you've got a period here where GDP uh, is passing the previous pre-pandemic peak in uh, total output produced in the U.S. economy. That's happening right now as I'm speaking. And then uh, it is projected to go above the previous trend line. So you're really looking at uh, quite a strong U.S. economy over the next couple of years. And I would hope that some of that would feed through to the underlying uh, growth rate. I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see uh, productivity growth uh, switch now to a higher growth uh, regime, a higher productivity growth regime, because we have experimented with uh, new ways of doing business, new technologies, and some of that will get into basic processes in the U.S. and, and lead to faster productivity growth. So that, a lot of that seems to be happening. Uh, the data is very volatile right now, but I'd be hopeful that the medium-term growth rate for the U.S. economy would be somewhat higher. Well, we'll hope you are correct. Jim Bullard is president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Thank you for joining us this morning on Bloomberg TV and radio. I'll send it back to you guys, and I'll enjoy being out here. You do that, Mike. Right now, really looking forward to this. Michael Ferroli with us with J.P. Morgan, their chief U.S. economist. And usually we can talk about his arch call on potential GDP, a very tepid number, even under 2%, or the other economics of his acclaimed weekly prospect. But today, we go to the gossip of the moment. Michael Ferroli, how does a pro like you look at the gossip of a blended inflation worry versus pros like you looking at, say, the Cleveland median, the trim Dallas, which one is right, a blended view of inflation or a more median view, a more acute view of price change? Well, I think if we're thinking about longer run, the median is probably a better indication of how much uh, transitory influences there are. I think looking at the top line is perfectly adequate for understanding uh, the pressures on household incomes uh, and disposable incomes that are being exerted by these inflation pressures. So they're real. They are depressing the amount of uh, real consumer spending that's occurring in the second and third quarters. Uh, but if we want to understand inflation developments out, you know, three to six months from now, I think things like the median are useful in telling us how much of that uh, increase is being driven by a few categories. And recently it has been driven by a few categories. So. Uh, we, like the market, or, you know, the inflation market, believe that as we look out, you know, one to two years, uh, a lot of this kind of spasm of inflation we've seen over the past few months uh, will be out of the picture. How does Chairman Powell fight off the inflationistas? Uh, <laughs> well, he saw a lot of that yesterday. He, he's persisting in his measure, uh, his message that this is transitory. Uh, if. If inflation expectations were to rise in uh, the market-based measures, uh, then you can 
you know, a little tough talk uh, you know, can beat back down those measures of inflation expectations. So far, that hasn't happened. And so right now, it's really just a rhetorical tangle with some members of Congress uh, that probably won't have a lot of influence on how they set policy. Michael, from your perspective, is the flattening yield curve signaling a likely Fed policy error, or is it signaling that this is bad inflation that will, by nature, slow future growth? I think there's a little of uh, a little of both. Certainly, uh, far forward inflation expectation component of the longer term yield curve isn't signaling much of an overshoot of uh, inflation relative to the Fed's two percent target. I think the other interesting thing, though, is if you look at it forward, uh, inflate, uh, um, interest rates is that the real interest rate component further out in the yield curve uh, remains very low. Uh, in some cases, in negative territory. I think that sends. Uh, a signal that the market doesn't have a lot of faith that this boomy growth we're seeing this year and probably next year uh, is translating into a higher path of trend growth. So I think it's sending uh, somewhat uh, a message really that secular stagnation, uh, while it's temporarily sort of out of the picture, will come back in, you know, in three, four or five years time from now. So the inflationistas, as Tom calls them, have pointed to the trend line, that the three-month rolling average of inflation has surged to levels that we have not seen for four decades. Mm -hmm. How do you push back against that and say, look, we still are seeing base effects. This still is really just a transitory move. Well, uh, you can control for the base effects by looking at three or six-month annualized measures, and those are very, very strong. Uh, you can then also strip out categories uh, that have been you know, outsized in their influence, used cars being the obvious one. Some of the um, you know, travel and tourism things are normalizations. Uh, you know, when you strip those out, uh, it's a little firm um, on a sequential basis, uh, which is you know, probably a good thing. Um, but uh, again, if you look at things like the median or the trim mean, it sends a much more reassuring message that um, you know, this is, is narrowly based. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't, <laughs> uh, to Powell's point, that I'm sure he's going to have to say it again this, uh, this morning, is that it's not that people don't spend money on used cars and gas uh, and airfares. Uh, it's just that when we, look, when we try and think about inflation developments, uh, you know, as we get into the winter and on into next year, should we expect this to persist? And if not, then reacting to it now uh, doesn't make much sense from the Fed's point of view. But it is, you know, look, it's a real um, hit to consumers' purchasing power, and that's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Mike, let's set the scene. We're in a hotel bar yesterday afternoon. I'm with Mr. Tom Keane here in New York City. He's there pontificating about, guess what, inflation. And I see the rack of newspapers, the stack of newspapers piled up in the hotel. Front page, Tom, what did I point to? The New York Post. The front page of the New York Post, and it said the incredible shrinking dollar. And I do wonder, from a consumer's perspective right now, when they're confronted with that, Mike, every time we have an inflation print, they're not reading your research, they're not listening to me. The majority of this country is seeing headlines like that one. What does that mean for expectations? Well, I think for, uh, for it weighs on expectations, actually, and there's a lot of uh, solid research that shows that you know, higher inflation expectations actually make consumers spend less, which is contrary to economic theory. Uh, I would say the more comforting thing is that so far, uh, surveys of consumers' inflation expectations beyond the one-year horizon have 
basically just returned to levels they were prior to the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, longer run, even the you know man on the street uh, apparently has not really changed their uh, longer run view of how uh, inflation developments are likely to play out. And so that should matter for you know thing, thinking about price setting and wage setting and, and wage demands. Uh, so far, it's not really. Um, consumers are understanding apparently that. Uh, just as the market and professional forecasters apparently are also understanding that uh, what happens this year is not a strong signal of what we should expect next year or the year beyond. That point, Mike, I think is so important. And Tom, weigh in on this. The discussion that we have every single day on these dynamics, it's just not the discussion that I don't think the rest of this country are having. And I think that expectations component is something we've got to be laser focused on through the next several months. The expectations uh, component is out of control. You see it everywhere. I love what Michael McKee, John, said about the Empire Index out of Buffalo, New York. It's not an elite three zip code series. It's something that really talks about a regional pulse. Well, he talked about policy too. So let's build on that, Mike, just to wrap things up for the Federal Reserve. Mike McKee asked this question and he repeatedly asks it. What do we get for 120 billion every single month? And can we get the same thing for less? What would your answer be to that, Mike? Well, if we get there, if we if we go less sooner than the market expects, I think what we would get is a tightening of financial conditions. Uh, I think you see that the way the market is uh, is you know completely attuned to every word Powell said. So is 120 billion dollars the right number? No, they kind of arrived at it by accident last summer, or by you know uh, experiment, let's say. Um, so that might not be the right number. But if they were to dial that back to 119 tomorrow, you can be quite assured that the market would uh, uh, would react in a very uh, negative way for financial conditions that affect households and businesses across the country. Mike Ferroli of JP Morgan. Mike, always good to see you. Thank you. Michael Ferroli of JP Morgan, the chief US economist. This is a joy. There are so many negative stories about asset management. Woe is me, this and that and the other, that it's nice to talk about a huge success. Own a piece of the rock, and you know it well from Prudential, their iconic effort across American finance since 1875. And out of that has become PGIM, P-G-I-M. Eric Schatzker here with a spirited conversation with a CEO taking a victory lap at PGIM. Right, Eric? Tom, absolutely. And that CEO is David Hunt. David, it's always a delight to have you with us on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Good morning. Good morning to you, Eric. It's great to be back with you. David, we heard it from Jay Powell himself, and no doubt he'll say the same again today. Too early to pull back on monetary stimulus. Let's translate what that means for investors, for financial markets, as someone who speaks for $1.5 trillion. David, is now still a good time to be taking risk, or is now a time to get cautious? Well, first, a few comments on the chairman's uh, remarks uh, yesterday, and I do think he'll say exactly the same thing uh, today. Um, without any doubt, the place to look is the labor market. There is all this noise about the monthly CPI uh, indices that come out. I would encourage your viewers not to spend a lot of time on that. All of the action is around the labor market. And that's what you need to do to understand the direction of the Fed and to understand inflation. 
So in the direction of the Fed, what's very clear, and they've been, they've been very consistent on this, is that until we have a lot more job creation in this country and we see unemployment going back down, they are not going to move on rates. So watching that growth of jobs is the most important place uh, to focus. And then secondly, is how the actual employment marketplace works. It's too early to tell. But it will be very interesting to see whether or not we do get a rise in wages because it's hard to lure uh, workers back, or, or will we see that actually employers have made significant advancements, they don't need as many workers, and actually the rise of automation is going to keep uh, wages down. Both of those, I think, are plausible at this point, but we're watching very carefully to see which one, because what we do know is that if we're going to go back to higher long-term inflation, those wages will need to rise. We've never seen it happen without that. Our view at the moment uh, is that uh, the inflation levels are transitory. We agree with the Fed, and we think their stance is very appropriate given the stage of the economic recovery. David, the debate over the timing of a taper is intensifying inside the central bank. St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard told Mike McKee right here this morning, it's time to end these emergency measures. How soon do you think the Fed should slow its bond purchases from $120 billion a month? So that goes back to what I'm watching closely. That will depend very much, I think, on the uh, employment picture and how quickly that picks up. If we have very strong job numbers and we begin to see wages beginning to rise, then I think we could easily enter into talks about talks starting uh, in, in Jackson Hole and then actually the fourth quarter here beginning to be some kind uh, of tapering. If, however, those employment numbers are much weaker than I've just projected, then I think we're looking at 2022 before that begins to happen. But I think that that labor picture is the piece to focus on to really understand where they're going to come out. David, when you look at the S&P 500 up almost 17 percent year to date as a proxy for risk assets and the Schiller P.E. ratio pushing higher and higher now at 38 times. What signal are those in indicators, let's call them, sending to the asset allocators who are your clients? So the dominant fact of the investment landscape today is that it's never been more punitive to hold cash. Full stop. For the last 24 months, that's been true, uh, certainly in the United States, but even more true actually around uh, around the world. And what that's doing is driving unprecedented amounts of money out of government bonds and into higher risk assets, um, certainly including equities, but also including a wide range of other alternative assets. Um, where we see the search for yield just intensifying. So I think what you have to believe about uh, valuations today is that those are supported by a view that rates are going to stay low for longer. That's a view that we certainly have, um, but others have been, uh, been pushing back hard against that, and time will tell. Well, let me go back to my first question then. You speak for a trillion and a half dollars. Is it time to be taking risk? Or time to get cautious. It sounds to me like you're on the risk-taking side. 
Full stop. We are we we believe that uh, risk assets are, uh, are are attractive today, and we certainly are uh, constructive on on risks. Um, we're mindful of some places where uh, you know pricing has run run ahead, but broadly, you know, there's plenty of risks in the economy. But our base case is for the next 18 months to have you know very strong economic recovery and economic performance right across the developed world and including China. David, you and I have talked many times about the need for consolidation in asset management. Earlier this week, PGM announced a small purchase, a Swiss private equity secondaries firm called Montana Capital. Is that the extent of the deal making we'll see from you, small bolt-ons? So let me put uh, this a little bit in perspective in our terms of our broader alternative strategy here. So we manage about $250 billion in alternatives of across both public and private. We're the third largest alternatives firm uh, in the world. Mostly for us, that's been a very leading real estate business and a private credit business. But we've been seeing a lot of money going into alternatives over the last four or five years, and we've been working closely with our clients on, on their alternative strategies. One thing that's become very clear from their perspective is that they feel that they need more liquidity for their private equity portfolios and increasingly now for real estate and private credit. And what secondaries do is allow them to actually swap out their LP interests. Mm-hmm. So this is bringing liquidity to the private equity uh, industry. And that is, uh, we see a very kind of early stages, but rapid demand in that. And so uh, we are delighted to welcome uh, Montana Capital Partners to the PGM family. It's a very high class firm that's been around for a decade and has a terrific investment capability. And we believe that they're going to be really critical to meeting the needs our clients have for finding more ways to provide liquidity into their private equity portfolios. David, why just secondaries? Right. The money is pouring into buyouts. Look at Hellman and Friedman. They raised twenty four billion dollars for a single fund. That's news out today. Why isn't PGM participating in primary private equity? So, Eric, we certainly have spent time looking at that. But in truth, we don't see what we bring that is special to that particular uh, area. The world does not need another KKR. Um, what we think we bring is a unique investment capability and an institutionalized capability in, in secondaries, now with, with Montana, where we can actually build um, a fundamentally differentiated franchise. So I applaud the leaders in, in private equity. I think that they've done a wonderful job. I mean, as you and I've talked about before, I think that's going to continue to grow. Um, but for us, we wanted to have a distinctive capability where we could actually build an institutionalized investment process that would directly speak to what our clients need today. David, one last quick question for you. I can't help but notice the enormous ESG business you're building inside PGM. It comes with some risks, I might say. How big a problem, David, is greenwashing in sustainable investing? You know, I think, Eric, it's a it's a major problem. Um, there is so much kind of marketing spin around ESG uh, now that sometimes it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. And I think that uh, the big question that I would encourage all of your viewers to ask their asset managers is, To what extent is ESG fundamentally grounded in your investment process? Uh, 
So it can't be a screen. It can't be a separate overlay. It needs to be part of how you manage money on a day-to-day basis. So every bond that we own has an ESG rating on it. Every stock we own in our quant portfolios has an ESG rating. And we use that both to make sure we're fulfilling our fiduciary duty uh, to clients and considering those risks and to then offer products that allow our clients to express how they want to invest in ESG. But if you don't start with that foundation of a, a true integration into your investment process, then you're really just on a marketing campaign. And that's the thing to look for. David, I want to thank you very much for spending time here with me and the rest of us at Bloomberg Television and Radio. David Hunt is the CEO of PGM Tom. Eric, thank you so much. Eric Schatzker there with an important interview, a successful story in asset management. Right now with a summary of what we've seen, Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence. And Allison, what I think is so important here is the view out. We're focused on the minutiae right now. Where are these institutions on July 15th, 2026? They're in great shape and it's really a solid quarter. So we have seen most of the stocks trade off. Um, but, you know, it's it's about expectations and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 1% after a huge move is not something that I would get overly right. upset about. Um, you know, we look at Morgan Stanley's results today and we see strength across the board. The one weak spot and the, and the one thing people might be a little bit worried right. about is the equities trading line. That's just a terrible, um, <laughs> I, I guess gray hair is just flowing in her. Allison, just because of time, I want to get to it because I know John okay. and Lisa have some important questions. James Diamond a couple of years ago said, look, all we do is hard work. What is the hard work for the American banks to succeed internationally? I think the hard work is really the investments, right? So on the ground, building the business, these banks, you know, there's a difference between buying and building. And JP Morgan is doing a little bit of both. And to your point, going international is is something that's new for them on the retail. They're obviously a huge global bank on the institutional side of things. They bought this little business in the UK. And I think we're going to see that uh, built out over the next uh, couple of years. And it is, I think he he said something like, blood, spit, and gravel um, in, in one of the, his recent talks at, John, at the conferences. That's Shakespearean, John. Blood, spit, and what was it? Gravel? Yeah. Nice. That's, that's a slogan for the You're tots. You're getting paid extra for blood, spit, and <clears throat> gravel yeah. over at Morgan Stanley, Tom. I guess so. It's, and it's really, it's, it's, the, it's the war on technology, you know, so well, we know that the banks have money and they're spending it. It's hard to see what the return on investment is today. Um, but I think that's where they're doing mm-hmm. the tough work. Allison, how important is it that Morgan Stanley showed an increase in interest income and lending, sort of a contrary to what we saw at other banks? So I think that's a, a positive. But for them, it's it's um, perhaps a smaller part of the business. It is part of their wealth business, which is um, overall a big uh, a big unit. But I think that um, what investors might be looking at uh, is the equity trading line. We know that they're the biggest in equity trading all the banks beat. Morgan Stanley beat, but perhaps a, a little bit higher bar coming into the earnings. And sort of the 8% growth looks a little bit modest compared to peers. And the question may be, after last quarter, what we saw with Archegos, are there some changes that are making an impact? They did say in their statement that prime brokerage was a help. Uh, we know that uh, J.P. Morgan and Mor- and J.P. Morgan and Goldman had record prime balances. Bank of America and Citigroup, we think, are gaining share. They had uh, really strong growth, although a little bit easier comparisons. And so th- that's, I think, really the one um, thing that 
investors may complain about. Um, otherwise, flows looking really good. Some slowdown from last quarter, but that that should be yeah. expected. Allison, when you take a step back, the big five U.S. banks have reported already, and we have been talking about taking market share, as you talked about, from the likes of, say, that Zurich Bank that Jeffries actually just warns may disappoint after the talent drain. How much have the U.S. banks gained share? I mean, which banks are the main gainers? That, I mean, I think that has been the story of the last decade. And the biggest beneficiaries have been Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and uh, JP Morgan. And in fact, um, equities trading has been a key area for the banks, um, but also fixed income trading. And and Morgan Stanley, even though we talk about equities, they've been one of the biggest gainers there over time. And so these three, uh, the leaders, have actually been consolidating share, especially within the cash equities business. Prime brokerage is a business uh, where, again, the banks were beneficiaries when Deutsche Bank uh, did their step back a few years ago. In the current environment, uh, again, Credit Suisse making a more dramatic pullback. Um, They've specifically said they're going to be cutting their balance sheet there. And so we think that the banks are benefiting not just in prime brokerage, but uh, through sort of knock-on risks, as we call them. Cash equities, again, is an area we think they're going to be gaining. Bank of America and Citigroup have also gained, but we think that this is now really the opportunity for them because the other three are already so big in prime brokerage. Citigroup lifted base salaries to 100,000 for first-year analysts that don't know one-tenth of what Allison Williams knows. Another sentence, BlackRock to lift compensation 8%. Oh, it's terrible. Come on, this is a rounding error for their income statement, isn't it's, it? It's a the, it's a very small impact, but Thank I th- you. but I think you are hitting on I think that the big thing that we're going to be focusing on coming out of this quarter and that is the cost line. I think that's that's really what investors have been reacting to. We've had JP Morgan has guided up about 5 billion since early December in 1 billion dollar increments. Citigroup is up the, upping their guidance, which they set as investments. We view that more positively than these sort of transformation costs. As we said, banks need to invest for the long term, sort of ignore the short term noise. You, but the, you but the feel question lifting is, pay 6 8% for young Turks is going to affect their core ratios. So not... I, not that specifically, but I think overall. I think overall the banks are spending more. And we do wonder, so two things. We have higher costs across the banks. How much of that is inflation? How much of it is the cost to compete? So in terms of compensation, because the banks don't just compete with each other. They are competing with hedge funds. They're competing with tech firms. No. And then se- secondly, um, so it's the cost to compete. And then, you know, in businesses like credit card, is it going to cost them more? They're just going to go spend the money at Chanel, right, Lisa? Uh, you know about Chanel better than I do, Tom. That, that was a good comeback. This morning. Thank you. <laughs> it's so we true. leave that there, Alison. <laughs> it's good to catch up. Alison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior, U.S. Banks Analyst. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.